You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hello, hello. So good to see you all here today on this wonderful day. Now, one of my earliest uh, primary school memories growing up in Adelaide was when I was around grade one, and I remember one of my classmates throwing a birthday party, uh, inviting everyone uh, in the year level. Uh, But this wasn't just any old party. This was an experience for me. First of all, he lived far out in the Adelaide Hills. It was a long, really long drive, like 30 minutes, which is very far in Adelaide. And when my mum pulled up to the driveway, the house was built on a hill. I was like, what is this place? It's like a mansion. This is so new to me. Then I went into the house and then I saw what would blow my mind. The dude had a swimming pool. All right, I know, right? Filthy rich. And mind you, I was a young Vietnamese boy who most of my life grew up in a suburb called Kilburn. Right? It's not exactly Beverly Hills. Okay, so this was my first experience of somebody wealthy. Fast forward to now, and this is laughable, right? Like my wife and I have stumbled upon some really, really tragic reality shows recently, one of them called Bling Empire. And that show simply, all it is, is it documents people who are extremely wealthy. There's no storyline. There's nothing. It's just these people are rich. Watch them. So we watched it, right? These are the kind of shows where owning a swimming pool to these people was, was a, is a joke, like Rather than just have a swimming pool, they want to have a swimming pool that's Olympic size, that's hanging off the edge of a cliff where you can see all of Los Angeles. That's how to live. See, there are some really wealthy people out there, and our first world culture soaks soaks it up. But even though this may be the case, I think the reality is, as middle-class Australians living in the west of Melbourne, we'd be considered wealthy ourselves. I mean... (laughs) We're all sitting on leather seats that recline while you're listening to a sermon, right? We are wealthy. As as Australians, we do really live in a land of plenty. We have stuff. We have work. We have a place to stay. We have a place to eat. And yet I think for many of us, and I speak for myself when I say this, there can often still be that desire for more. I see that those shows like Bling Empire, and I can't help but wonder, oh, what it'd be like if I did have that pool? I look at my friend's Instagram, and sometimes I, oh, I wish I, I had that. I wish I was on that vacation. So even though I know my life is already filled with great abundance, the temptation for more lingers. And I think that's a very common feeling we have as uh, middle-class Aussies. And so we ask, how do we wrestle with this tension? As Christians, who do really live in plenty, how do I live in this wealth-obsessed society? Can I see God? Can I enjoy him in plenty? And I think the Apostle Paul in the first letter of Timothy speaks into this issue quite directly, uh, giving Christians some some real good food for thought to help us navigate through this question. Uh, So teaching us as we listen to him. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10. It says, But godliness with contentment, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we are food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So in this passage, it starts off with the Apostle Paul directing his warning to false teachers of the time who were teaching all sorts of false doctrines and teachings that were counter to the words of Jesus Christ. But in this section in particular, in verse 6 to 10 in chapter 6, Paul speaks specifically about one of the primary concerns of the false teachers is that of wealth and money. It seems that these men were using their godliness uh, for financial gain. They were men devoting their lives to making money, cunning and greedy. They were a group who greatly desired money. So Paul would go on and deal with this concern directly, talking about its dangers and traps while laying down principles that are not just targeting the teachers, but universally significant for all Christians. Again, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. See, I love what Paul does here in verse 6. He, as he uses the, the false teachers' uh, terms and flips them on their head. To the false teachers, they had held on to godliness as a way to become rich. And so Paul agrees in a way, saying that in godliness, there is great gain. There is profit, but it's not the gain, the wealth of money that the false teachers had in mind. But as John Calvin puts it, godliness in itself is a sufficient gain for us because through it, we not only inherit the world, but also enjoy Christ and all the riches he brings. It's, it's godliness with contentment that is great gain. And see, the word contentment here, in its original Greek, this, this word artikia, expressed quite a, a favourite quote, a favourite virtue of old Greek philosophers. They loved this word contentment, this artikia. They loved it because the word would uh, often translate to self-sufficiency essentially a relying on one's own inner resources. But Paul actually flips it around. He flips it, suggesting that genuine artikia is Christ-sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. And he makes this point in Philippians chapter 4, which says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Artikia, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a Christ-sufficient contentment. See, in Philippians, Paul is saying he can be content in any circumstance, poverty or wealth, because of Christ's strength. So as Paul uses the same word here in Timothy, what he's saying here is that godliness with this artikia, this Christ-sufficient empowering which lets us live above both want and plenty, is great gain. Paul has flipped it on those whose love of money was great. There is a profit and gain for the godly, but it comes from a Christ-centred contentment. This godliness is not about what the false teachers saw, not about obtaining better and more possessions, but the gain for the godly comes from what writer Philip Towner says, an active life of faith, a living out of covenant faithfulness in relation to God that finds sufficiency and contentment in Christ alone, whatever one's outward circumstances might be. That is true gain. Now, the question is, have we learnt this contentment? And I think for most of us, this is quite a challenging question to answer 
uh, even uh, as believers of Jesus, uh, this Christ-sufficient contentment can on most days be very hard to remain in. And I think there's a big, big, big reason for that. And I think it's because we live in a society that preaches discontentment. So my wife, Lena, she loves her Apple products. Apple has convinced her to buy most things in their ecosystem. It started out when, you know, when she was younger, just an iPhone. Then it became a MacBook. Then it became an iMac. Then an Apple Watch. Then, an Air, then AirPods. Then she got a second pair of AirPods. Then an iPad. She even has an Apple Pencil. Then, to the chair on top, she worked for Apple. I married Steve Jobs, all right? <laughs> My wife just can't get enough. She gets reeled in every year to buy these things. And don't sit on your high horse, uh, Android users. You guys are just the same. You have an Android fridge, okay? So relax. See, the temptation for us is huge. It's huge. The world and how it's run, it's every day bombarding us with this message that we need more. You need more. You need to have this type of job, this type of car, this type of house, this body, this skin. And what these things promise us is contentment when we do have them. But then the next version comes out. Then the newer model releases. And then that more better, that more apt person does it better. These promises of contentment end up being anything but. Our lives are filled with discontentment. It becomes a constant pursuit of, of something more or a constant feeling of dejection when, when we can't obtain these things. And I think back to the beginning uh, of creation in the garden where Adam and Eve seriously had everything, yet they were tempted by Satan to obtain more. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, they had just had to have it, giving in and disobeying their God, the creator, in effect beginning that, that long-term toxic relationship that humanity has with discontentment. So in a world that breeds discontent, how do we develop this Christ-sufficient contentment? See, we have to see that as people, there is a huge God-shaped hole inside us that only God can satisfy. And if we don't fill this with God, we will try to fill this with all sorts of stuff, none that are sufficient. See, have you noticed that in, in movies that have people chasing some sort of treasure, it always comes with a sequel, right? National Treasure, National Treasure 2. Indiana Jones, there's like four of them. Pirates of the Caribbean, they're looking for treasure. There's five. There's a sixth coming out. Watch it soon. Watch it here, right? <laughs> they, they, they find treasure in all these movies. They find the treasure they've been searching for. They have a laugh. Ah, this is great. Yeah, we found it. Then they go back and look for another one. The next in the sequel, in the next movie. It's never enough. The search always continues. They're never content. And so it is the same with whatever we hold in this world as our treasure. But Paul reminds, reminds the believer here, the godly, he says in our passage in 1 Timothy, is that true gain, true profit, is for the one whose treasure is Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Jesus says, Jesus himself says in John 10, verse 10, that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly, that he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, the word sufficient is defined as enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. See, ever since our sin 
has broken that bond with our creator God in the garden. Our deepest human need has been that of salvation from sin and death. That's our greatest need. And Jesus answered it through his death, through his resurrection, laying down his life for his sheep. He fulfilled our deepest need. That God-shaped chasm inside us fulfilled only by him. He saves, he perfects, he equips, he completes, he provides. Christ, our treasure. We don't need the sequel. We don't need that next treasure map. The search doesn't continue. We have our true treasure in Jesus. He alone is sufficient. And so we can be content in that. In fact, we can enjoy that. There's something joyful, something reassuring uh, that we can be content in Christ. There's a, I think there's a sort of peacefulness to it. I think of my mum, who I looked up to very much, uh, who I've seen, obviously her, I've, I've been a part of her whole life and I've been able to see both ends of the spectrum uh, from struggling when she first got here to Australia Making, to, struggling to make ends meet, working two, three jobs just to feed me and my uncle and my auntie, to then, one, to then eventually she owned a, a very popular restaurant in the busy areas of the Adelaide CBD, to then now more recently giving that all up to be a pastor's wife, no longer working at all, um, living on not much but focusing on ministry and missions for the rest of her life. In it all, I saw a faithful woman who was joyful and at peace no matter the circumstance. Even though my mum's financial situation had changed and I'd seen her go through all the ups and downs, changed so drastically, what I saw that was unwavering was her love for Christ and enjoyment of God, a deep sense of Christ-sufficient contentment. She had found her treasure. and It was Jesus, and that was enough. So while she had gained a lot and lost a lot, she would see everything. She would see everything as a gift. From God, which leads us to the next section of words from Paul. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So I ask the question, what's the first thing you remember saving up for? For me, it was a car. It was a hand-me-down. It was a 1990 Toyota Camry and it was an absolute bomb. Like the boot didn't close. So every time I drove, I got pulled over a few times telling telling me to fix it. I never fixed it. But it also had an accelerator that didn't have the pedal. It was just like a rod. So I'd always be stabbing my foot when I drove. But seriously, it felt so good to finally save up and get that car, to finally save up that whole $200 to get that car. And this is quite a normal part of our culture, isn't it? That, that feeling of joy and sometimes relief that we finally saved up to own that thing, to own it. Actually, it's often praised. And so it should be. It's a huge life achievement when, when you finally save up and own your first house. It's encouraging when the, the fruits of your years and years, maybe even decades of labor, have seen, of work, have seen you finally own that business. These are momentous achievements, ticking off the boxes uh, of the Australian dream, as you will. That feeling of ownership is good. And I think this is so natural to us because as people, uh, ownership is something we hold on to dearly. From grabbing that toy off when we're a kid, off our sibling, because it's mine. 
to saving up that every penny in the piggy bank to finally get that car, right? To own something can often bring us this sense of joy, achievement, and power that we earned it. We take pride in it. It's ours to control and use however we want. We get to dictate what we do with it because we own it. But there's a subtle danger in which Paul sternly reminds us. Again, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul's focus remains on those whose desires is wealth and possessions, that we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. Human existence is exactly this. We arrived empty-handed and we'll leave just the same. What we own, our material possessions, money, our wealth, our advantage, these won't pass through the veil. And I think this can be hard to hear as middle-class Australians because when we're fed every day that idea that our possessions, our money, our wealth, our provisions are something that is ours and ours alone, we attach ourselves to it. We bind ourselves to these things. This is my house. I earned it. I built it. This is my bank account. You know, all these endless overtime hours that I spend all this time was by me. It's mine. We claim ownership to it, and without even realizing sometimes, we, we, we lift our money, our resources, our materials to a status higher than they ought to be. We become proud because we have it, and it's ours. And notice that the more we believe something is ours, the more we take pride in our ability to control it. But the reality is none of it is actually ours. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Everything that is ours is, in fact, the Lord's. It is his to own, his to keep, his to give. The line from the song, he gives and takes away. Even in our wealth or possessions we claim ownership to, we know just as well that in one foul swoop, it could just be as easily taken away from us because it's not ours. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So while our culture feeds us this enticing image of ownership, I think for Christians, we need to change it to stewardship. Now I think all the way back again to, to creation, where Adam and Eve were, were directed by God, their creator, to take care of the garden and all within it, the plants, the creatures. Adam and Eve were caretakers, stewards, tasked to care for the created order. God entrusted them this, stewards, yet it was clear that they were not the owners. It's God who is the ultimate owner of everything. He is the creator who entrusted management to Adam and Eve to be exercised according to his purposes. See, R.C. Sproul says, stewardship is rooted in the creation of mankind. This is our relationship. God is the owner. We are the managers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. See, we have no claim to absolute ownership of anything. Not our resources, our possessions, our money, our business, our abilities, our inheritance. It is God's to give and we are merely stewards of what he gives, whatever the wealth or provisions we receive. And this has huge implications for us because when we shift our understanding that our finances the things we own, our investments are not ours, but the Lord's, I think it gives us an incentive to use it more faithfully and purposefully. 
See, Mark Zuckerberg, who made Facebook, has given $1.6 billion to help hospitals and schools. Bill Gates has donated $27 billion to all sorts of organisations that aid things like health, poverty, science. There are plenty of generous people in the world, celebrities, business moguls, your workmate. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to see. I believe God can and does use of people who may not believe in him to bring about his will in redeeming this world. But to the Christian, to the one who rests in the truth that all that we have is actually, in fact, not ours, but the Lord's, to the Christian, it actually gives our wealth, our possessions, our provisions, purpose. God has entrusted us with these things often good things, that we may exercise them according to his purposes, used in generosity, used, in, used intentionally, used for the good of others, used in advancing his saving, sanctifying and healing purposes in the world, used to bring glory to him. See, Paul, talking about the rich, would later in the chapter say, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what that which is truly life. See, guys, in our plenty, when we shift our hearts and minds from an owner mindset to a steward mindset, the things we have and the lifestyle we live no longer become about personal embellishment. But what God has given us becomes a means to bring about his redeeming purposes. So that new house you finally own, invite your neighbours over, hear their story, then share your gospel story. That surplus savings account you've gradually built up over time, share it with that person, team, organisation who are on mission to bring physical and spiritual food to many. That new Apple TV that you recently gifted yourself, use it at your gospel community, bringing up passages and resources that aid the group into digging deeper into the word. See, our wealth our possessions, our provisions. These are all gifts given to us by God. God has blessed us into affluent lives here in Melbourne. That's the reality. And while the temptation is for us to live, uh, live, our, live for ourselves in this plenty, Paul reminds us of our place in this all. He shifts our temporary perspective of ownership to an eternal perspective of stewardship. And I think when we see our wealth, our belongings in such a way, it helps us enjoy God in our plenty even more, that there is purpose in what we have, that we can practically be a part of God's uh, redeeming work using what he's entrusted us with. Like I'm so encouraged by the people in our church who are so generous with their things. I think of one family who offered up their house for baptism and have it ready any time we need it for other ministries, such as introducing Jesus or prayer nights. I'm so encouraged by the many people who take part in making care packs, the many folks who partner with Compassion, people who serve on many rooms weekly, people who use their vocation, what God has given them, to aid in our church building search. An eternal perspective of stewardship in their plenty. So now hearing all this, there is a challenging question that arises though. Because God has entrusted us with what he gives, 
for us who do live in a wealthy country? Does that mean we embrace our plenty, maybe even desire it so, so that we can you know, use it for God's purposes? And I think it's a good question. It's a challenging question to have, and I think Paul helps us kind of think through this a bit. So you follow with me in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So James Barnett, a gentleman uh, from Florida uh, who grew up as a Christian, one day after a turning point on a mission trip uh, to a country, to a city where they were working in the the local city's dump, um, decided to give up his six-figure salary job to leave his wealthy living and become homeless, living on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, um, in order to love his homeless neighbours and, and share with them the gospel every day. You've probably heard a few stories similar to this before, you know, inspiring ones where a person gives away pretty much everything for the sake of the gospel. You know, there are even stories of this in the Bible. And these are wonderful stories, a huge encouragement and example of the faithfulness of people. And yet what I find myself often doing is that after hearing them and reflecting, I start to ponder whether my way of living is not so faithful. Because, you know, I live that middle-class Australian lifestyle, an air-conditioned house, a comfy bed and bed sheets, a few trips abroad every now and then, three square meals a day, sometimes seven, right? (laughs) I have a dozen Cadbury Easter eggs bunnies in the fridge, the average middle-class Aussie life. And then I start to ponder whether this life that I'm living is, in a sense, acceptable to God. While not rich, rich, yet still rich compared to the majority, a life that is, to be honest, abundant, whether this life is not faithful as compared to a person like James Barnett. Should I be okay with this lifestyle as a follower of Christ? Or should I be disregarding all of what God has entrusted me with, my wealth and possessions, to live in poverty? for the sake of the gospel and kingdom. And I think in verse 8, Paul helps us navigate through this question as he paints for us a practical picture of what Christian contentment looks like. See, the thrust of Paul's argument in this whole passage is to not love wealth. So in verse 8, when Paul says that we can be satisfied in having food and cover, he's telling us to learn to be content with the necessities to be content with little, that God provides enough for us. Essentially, a call to live simply. See, one writer writes, Paul is not establishing the maximum necessary for contentment, but the minimum. I think why we have trouble imagining being like James Barnett and giving it all up to live in poverty is actually because we enjoy being in plenty. And I think that's a natural response to have. Like, again, I, want, like, I think our God is a God who wants us to have good things. And many times he does give us good things. Again, I think back to creation where God's plan for humanity was to enjoy in abundance the beauty and the fruitfulness of creation. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were in a rich, fertile place, a place meant for humans to flourish, to prosper and live in abundance in every sense. And as it says in Genesis 1, 28, it says God blessed them in this way. This was a relationship between God and humanity, a very tangible, real means of blessing from a known and loving creator, abundance. God, I don't think, endorses extreme poverty. If anything, poverty is a result of the fall through sin. But rather, I think Christian contentment means 
we should be content with the simple necessities which God gives us as we seek him above all things. See, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus reminds people who were anxious about the necessities of life, food, water, shelter, and Jesus responds with this, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So should our lives be ones led by scarcity rather than abundance? See, while the James Barnett story was one of, the, was one of great faithfulness, I don't think God's expectation of his people is one where all believers, where every believer is meant to give it all up and live in near poverty. I think if this was God's demand, then it would seem only the extremely impoverished would have any chance of the future glory promised. But looking through the Bible, we'll actually see many examples of people who were indeed wealthy, yet God would use them in advancing the kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body and laid it in the tomb, described as both a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. Joanna, the wife of Herod's household manager, wealthy in her own right, provided for Jesus and his disciples out of her own means. Lydia, from the book of Acts, a merchant, which is regarded in the, the wealthier categories of society, uses her house as a means of hospitality for the apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy on their ways and missions. These were all individual, uh, individuals who, while wealthy, were nonetheless used as God's instruments, doing a special work through their wealth for God's righteous causes. But in the same vein, God's expectation isn't for every believer to then be wealthy, that we should strive for wealth since God can use the rich to bring about his purposes. And this is an unfortunate false gospel that is prominent in today's age, uh, one that, that falsely promises health, wealth, and prosperity in standing with somebody's faith. A false gospel. But what I do think is God's expectation then is that no matter our, our living or financial situation, that we seek first his kingdom and righteousness and trust in the Lord's provision. See, Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, tax collectors were known for cheating people in amassing huge wealth for themselves. Yet this man, Matthew, was called by Jesus to be his disciple. And when called, Matthew used his abundance of wealth to throw a huge banquet for other tax collectors to come and eat with Jesus. Matthew would then give it all up because he had found his true treasure. He would follow Jesus, trusting Jesus to provide him as he followed him everywhere. You might be called to give it all up, your wealth, your possessions, to go. But more likely, you also may not. What's important is that either way, we can be content in what the Lord gives, promising not luxuries, but necessities. And we should be content with his provisions, even if they're humble, for we already have enough in Jesus. So understanding this, I think there's something specifically for us here, sitting here today, 
that we have to be very mindful of here. I think there's a greater temptation for us as people who already live in plenty as we live, to be honest, uh, comfort, like comfortably and in riches, essentially, that our idea of enough can easily get muddy because the more you have, the more you want. While God can and does use wealthy people too to go about his purposes, I think Paul's call to a simple life in contentment should be especially on our hearts as we ought to intentionally strive for this daily. Why? Because as Jeremiah 17 says, our hearts are more deceitful than above all else. As affluent Melburnians living in plenty, even as Christians, how easy is it for our hearts to crave more wealth? We have to see that Paul goes hard about Christian contentment because he knows just how dangerous the desire of money really is that there is a danger in plenty. Look what he says in verse 9 to 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a stern and weighty warning from Paul. The problem with the false teachers of the time was that they had a deep love of money to the point that they pursued godliness as a means of financial gain. Yet to us as readers, us sitting here today, the warning is just the same. There is a danger in the love of wealth. And especially as we are a people who live in plenty, we need to heed Paul's warning with a very keen ear. See, Paul first uses the word temptation, that the greedy fall into temptation, describing to us this description of alluring into sin, that the love of wealth in a way knows how to cause people to look in directions that they would normally never have looked. See, there's the lure to cheat. How many times have you thought of people who, because of the greed of money, the love of money, have been lured to cheat, to deceive, to take advantage, to exploit? Paul then uses the word snare or trap, painting for us an animal that is caught and controlled. In the same way, the money, the materials, it traps people, it controls them. William MacDonald, a writer, says, such a man also falls into a snare or a trap. The desire becomes so strong that he cannot deliver himself from it. Perhaps he promises himself that when he reaches a certain figure in the bank account, he will stop. He's trapped. Paul continues, people who love money fall into a senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I think of people, unfortunately, who are close to me that I know who have gambled away mortgages and entire savings and completely destroyed their families. But Paul's wording here isn't just about moral destruction, but spiritual devastation as it continues in verse 10, where it leads to apostasy. It leads to a disease that can gradually rot a believer to wander from the faith. This is the love of money. This is what it does. Paul's warning against the love of money, wealth, and materials is firm, and it's something we need to hear today. The danger in plenty is that we will be daily tempted to give in to this love. So it's not the money or, or, or the wealth itself that's the issue. These are just things, right? Coins, paper, materials, things that you hold. But as verse 10 points out, it's our love for these things. 
and it's devastating. The love of money is a root of all evil. I remember an illustration that I read um, on just how impactful the love of money is by describing, this person described how the love of money takes root in any of the Ten Commandments. Like I'll throw up some, you think of the second one, you shall not make yourself an idol. Essentially, I believe money is the idol for the majority of the world. The fourth command, keep the Sabbath day holy. There are many that are too busy pursuing riches to set aside one day each week to, to, to be with the Lord. You shall not murder. How often is murder the reason, money the reason for somebody's death, somebody's murder? Church, the danger of the love of money is real. Paul's warning is strong. So how do we as people who live in plenty stand firm against this? I think by having a daily posture of thanksgiving. When we understand that everything that is ours is actually God's and given to us, we should be nothing but thankful to the God who gives. Thing is, we only often uh, have thankful hearts when we are living comfortably, right? Isn't it easier to be thankful when we are living in abundance? But it says in James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think that when we grasp that everything, everything we receive, whether it be the roof over our heads, whether it be the food in our fridge, even to some of the stuff that we take for granted, the breath that we breathe, when we truly see all these things as a true gift from God, then thanksgiving to God becomes an instinct, leading us to be content no matter the circumstance. If we can come to God in thanksgiving in seasons of less, we won't forget him in seasons of plenty. Christian contentment must go hand in hand with thanksgiving. Whether God chooses to give us plenty or meet only our necessities, we should be content and thankful either way. And while this may be difficult in some seasons, I think Paul helps us with encouragement uh, in verse 11 and 12 straight after it. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Flee these things. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. I think if I were to best sum up these, what Paul just said here in these two verses, what Paul's call for us to do, it would be to love God. It says, and Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. See, the love of money the love of wealth, the love of possessions, ownership, entitlement, they stand no chance when our deepest and truest love is the love of our Father. He is our giver. God is our provider. He is our treasure. He is sufficient. He is enough. Later on in the chapter, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, I think the simplest way to end our whole series on enjoying God is that to enjoy him in plenty, to enjoy him in pain, enjoy him in uncertainty, to enjoy him today is to love him. Let the love of God take root in all aspects of your life, grounded in Christ's love for you. For he and only he is enough. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we come here today as a family, as a church, as a people who, out of your grace and mercy, you've blessed us in a land of plenty, a city that we have so much, Lord. And yet we thank you so much for Paul's reminder in our lives of a Christ-centered contentment, Heavenly Father. We live in a world that pushes out this notion that we should have more, that we need more, Lord. But may you help stir in our hearts and remind us today that only you can satisfy, only you fulfill, that you are enough, that our greatest need, our deepest desire is salvation from our sin and that you fulfill that through your, the blood of Jesus. Lord, help us see the things that we own as things that are yours. Help us be stewards that we may lead generous lives, that we may live lives uh, where we see all our things as having a purpose and the purpose is to bring you, you glory. The purpose is in the purposes of advancing your kingdom so people will too know of this joy, this need, this sufficient Christ, Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for all that you've blessed us with. Give us hearts of thanksgiving for you are worthy and you are enough. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.